You're listening to the SSPX Podcast, and welcome to episode 23 of the Crisis in the Church series. We're starting our four-episode look at the Novus Ordo Mass, which was introduced in 1969. We'll be covering a different aspect during each of these episodes. Today, we'll be looking at the new Mass and how it was developed as an ecumenical rite. We know from previous episodes that the Church had pivoted in its relationship to other religions. But the new Mass is a striking example of this ecumenist spirit, and Father Reuter will explain to us how nearly every change that was made was done to appease non-Catholics. If you'd like to learn more about this series we're doing on the crisis in the church, or go back and revisit our previous 22 episodes, or if you want to support this project, please visit sspxpodcast.com slash crisis. Now, we'll turn to Father Reuter. Welcome back to the Crisis in the Church series here on the SSPX podcast, and very happy to welcome back Father Stephen Reuter. Hello, Father. How are you today? I'm well, Andrew. How are you? Not too bad. And we are today diving into the Novus Ordo Mass. So we've been talking about the uh, we've been talking about the Second Vatican Council, and then last episode we're talking about the um, the period directly after the Second Vatican Council, where all these innovations, all these changes happened, and we ended with Father McFarland saying. Uh, yeah, there's probably the main way that these changes that happened after the Second Vatican Council touches the lives of Catholics every every week, um, or more often or less often, is is the changes in the Mass. So mm-hmm. we're going to take four episodes and really dive into uh, the changes of the of the Novus Ordo Mass. And today we're talking about how, by its inception, it really is an ecumenical rite. Yes, that's correct. So how is it that the Novus Ordo Mass is ecumenical? How can we make that claim, Father? Well, if we understand what ecumenism is and what the right of the Mass is, we'll clearly see that it is an ecumenical right. And even more than that, we'll see with the Ottaviani intervention that the new Mass is really the incarnation of a new theology, which is an ecumenical theology. So how is it that, I mean, we're going to be talking about ecumenism in a lot more detail later, uh, but yeah. can you give a quick summary just before we get into ecumenism in and of itself, uh, what, what ecumenism is, what, what it means? Uh, I know Pius XI had, a, had an encyclical about it that was kind of thrown in the trash can, and then later on, uh, the, the later popes um, basically reinvented what ecumenism is. But how do we, how do we view ecumenism, Father? Yes, um, like you mentioned, Pius XI condemned it in Mortalium Animos in 1928. Unfortunately, that condemnation was not respected by his, by his successors. But ultimately, we can say ecumenism is unity without truth. The idea is that we're going to discuss those things which we have in common and leave aside those things upon which we disagree, those things which divide us. So we're not going to speak about things which divide us. And so if the doctrine of our Lord Jesus Christ, or Christ himself, who is the sign of contradiction, divides us, we'll just put him aside for the sake of unity. So this spirit of of ecumenism, then, as as the modern Catholic Church sees it, was kind of the driving force behind the creation of the new mass. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. The 
the new right is an ecumenical right. They wanted to strip from the new right everything which offended the Protestants. And this by admission of the architect of the new mass, who was Monsignor Bugnini. He was the principal architect. And he stated that the purpose of this new rite is to remove from the Catholic rite everything which constitutes even a shadow of a stumbling block or a displeasure for our separated brethren. So really to take away from the Catholic mass that which is unapologetically Catholic. It seems like it's a it's such a dramatic shift, and, and we know it is a dramatic shift. Um, how is it that those changes were able to be made, and yet the mass in and of itself is still valid? We're going to talk about whether or not it's it's a good mass or a bad mass, or whether or not Catholics should even attend it. That's that's for another time. But just mm-hmm. talking about the validity of it itself, if if there were so many changes that were made, can we still say it's a, it's a valid mass? Yes, and to do so, we have to make a distinction between the essence of the Mass, which comes from our Lord Jesus Christ and cannot change, and the rite of the Mass, which is created by the Church, created by a man, and which has developed over time. Okay, so what are, how, do we, how do we differentiate between these two elements then? So the divine element is simple. It's given by Christ. It consists in the double consecration of valid matter, which is natural bread and wine, by a validly ordained priest who has the intention to do what the church does, to do a sacred action. So that's what's divine is the matter, the form, and the intention of a validly ordained priest. And then we have the human element, which is the rite, the ritual, which surrounds this sacred act of consecration. And... uh, This ritual was developed by the popes, by the councils, over time. When we speak of the ritual, we're speaking of the words and the actions which the ministers perform leading up to the consecration and following the consecration. And this human element, we note, has to be worthy of the divine element. So transubstantiation, the sacrifice of our Lord, is the most important thing in human history. So the church has the duty to create a rite which is going to surround and protect this sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the law of prayer must correspond to the law of belief. So what we believe about transubstantiation and the real presence and the sacrifice of our Lord must be reflected by the rite which the church produces and defends. And and supported by, by the language and supported by the rubrics. Uh, all these things tend to draw our attention, our our intellect closer to what is actually being done. Yes, everything leads to the sacrifice of our Lord at the consecration, and everything flows from the sacrifice of our Lord's at the consecration. One of the arguments that you hear often about the Novus Ordo Mass, and, and indeed about the fact that you can change the Mass at all, is that... The mass has never been a static rite. It has never been a static ceremony. It's 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 changed from the Last Supper to you know the third century, the fifth century, the thousands, you know, all the way up to mm-hmm. the 1500s, and then today. So, can we take just a little bit of history and, and go back to where the traditional mass? If you dropped a traditional Catholic in a church, where's the earliest point where he would be able to recognize? Okay, this is the mass. So, blessed John Henry Cardinal Newman, he noted that. 
the traditional mass has remained virtually unchanged since, since the third century. Oh. So, and then, of course, there were some minor changes up through, through St. Gregory the Great. And then, of course, it's codified by Pius V. So, and all these changes were, were natural, were organic, were promoted by, a certain, there was a certain heresy which they were fighting or truth they were defining to make more clear. Whereas the new mass is something totally other. So the comparison fails because the new mass is radically different than all these minor developments, which were finally codified by Pope St. Pius V. And, and when you say that Pope St. Pius V codified the mass, um, from, from my recollection, there were many different rites happening all throughout, all throughout the, the, not even the Roman church, but you know, the universal church at the time. Yes. And he was trying to say, all right, this is, this is the one, you know, don't use all of these different rights. They were all valid. They were all fine under the law mm-hmm. at the time, but he's saying, let's not simplify, but let's make sure that things are done properly by forming one. Exactly. For the sake of the unity of the Western church, you realize that this, this Latin rite, which he was codifying really was a perfect expression of the Catholic's faith in the sacrifice, in the real presence, but also he was fighting against the Protestant heresy, and he realized that the best way to keep the people Catholic was to give this unified rite, which perfectly expressed the teaching of the church, notably the teachings which were denied by Luther and the Protestant heretics. So as we see all throughout the churches, the church was protecting her children from the heresy of the Protestants, and for that reason, need to codify this specific rite, which he realized had nourished the centuries, created the martyrs, and he wanted to leave this rite to his successors, to Catholics of all ages, so we could continually be nourished by this sacred rite, which had so sanctified the church. And this was in 1570, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Fifteen seven. So this is quo primum. This is the bull that he mm-hmm. that he uh, promulgated in fifteen seventy. Um, so basically, from you know, like you said, the third century. I didn't realize it had gone back that far. Third century through fifteen seventy, and then all the way up through you know, basically through the Second Vatican Council. So yes. seventeen hundred years or so, and very formally for four hundred years or so, this was the mass. And then yes. we have these changes that seems very drastic. Yes. Yes, it seems very rash even. And I think the reason is, is because the the innovators, they understood, as did Pope St. Pius V, that if you want to change the faith and the hearts and the minds of Catholics, you'll do it primarily through the worship, through the Mass. The Catholics of the 1960s were certainly not reading all of the documents of Vatican II. Even the Catholics in 1986 we're not plugged in enough to know about the horrible prayer meeting at Assisi, the ecumenical movement, which accumulated at that prayer meeting in Assisi. So if you're going to change their faith, make their faith ecumenical, which was the goal of the Second Vatican Council in many ways, the innovators realized you must change the liturgy and use the liturgy, so to speak, as a ramrod to push this new theology into the minds of people. It's well, it's similar to today. And I mean, even with uh, the ability to, you know, log on and see what the Pope is doing every day. Mm-hmm. If you start talking about Amoris Laetitiae, for instance, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that that came out from Pope Francis a few years ago, many Catholic eyes will kind of glaze over and go, what? Why are you talking? 
but um, you start changing the liturgy. Mm-hmm. That's something tangible that people can see. That's that's how that's the faith is going to be affected by them. Yeah, it's your daily bread, really. It's how you're nourished is the prayer of the church. So if that changes, your faith will eventually change. So the mass itself, it is it is a a theological right. I guess that's the right term to use. There there are doctrines inherent in the mass itself. And and what are those doctrines, Father? Well, the mass as defined by the church is the sacrifice of our Lord, is the sacrifice of the cross. The only difference is it's performed in an unbloody manner. And since it is the sacrifice of our Lord, there are certain things which flow from that fact. And one is that the mass is a truly propitiatory sacrifice, which means it actually satisfies for our sins and makes us pleasing to God. Another doctrine which is contained in this reality is that there is a priest who sacrifices this, this sacrificing priesthood, which is to say a minister who stands in the person of Christ, who's truly a mediator between God and man. And thirdly, another great truth contained in the Roman ritual is that at Mass, transubstantiation takes place, which is to say our Lord Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity, is truly present under the appearance of bread and wine after the consecration. And the Trent had made it very clear that the word transubstantiation is the is the word which is to be used by Catholics to express this great reality. So these are the three main truths of the Mass. These are, in fact, dogma or doctrine of the Church. Yes. Um, how, how does? I'm sorry. They were defined by the Council of Trent. Yes. Okay. So how how are these truths then undermined, or I guess I should ask, are these truths undermined by the Novus Ordo Mass, or does the Novus Ordo Mass go so far as to say these things don't happen anymore, or is it more of a we just don't kind of mention it? It's often by removing things, okay, that the new Mass undermines our faith in these these great truths. For example, there's times when you have an obligation to say something, and in not saying it, you are saying something. And so the innovators in removing certain prayers from the traditional mass, they were saying something. They were saying these prayers offend our separated brethren. These prayers defend the teaching of the Council of Trent, which was hated by the Protestants. And therefore, we're going to remove these prayers because these prayers are a sign of contradiction. They're a stumbling block to our, quote unquote, separated brethren. So prayers were removed from the traditional right, which led to an undermining and a destruction of the faith of the church. Can you give us an example of, of a prayer or two that, that was removed that, that kind of fits this mold? The most notable is the removing of the traditional offertory prayers. The, we can really say the whole mass and all of the doctrine of the church is contained in the twofold offertory prayer which the priest prays at the traditional Mass. The whole nature of the Mass is expressed in the offertory prayer. Very interesting. So, and this was, these, these prayers were just completely removed or just very minimal in, in the new Mass? Yeah, the, as we know them, they were completely re- removed and replaced by a type of blessing. It was from an ancient Jewish ritual for the blessing of a table, but yeah, the replacement in no way lives up to the actual offertory prayer. 
it's it's interesting i was i was reading something about this ahead of time and and the the authors of the new mass wanted to use this like you said this ancient jewish offertory prayer which sounds like it would have been the same prayer that our lord said at the last supper and they're looking at that and saying well then this is perfect our lord himself said it how can it be bad well because that jewish prayer is not sufficient for what the new ma- uh, new mass the the mass that our lord instituted the new covenant is yes it does not fully express the nature of the mass and nor does does it determine the minister's intention to offer a sacrifice. So the church throughout history, she, you know, would add prayers, she would make things more specific because she realized our faith needed these clarifications in these prayers. And so the offertory prayer really summarizes the whole whole heart of the Mass. Was there any pushback to the development of, the, of this Mass? Again, the Council ended in 65. The new Mass was promulgated in 69. So there were four years of development of, of this Mass were there, was there any pushback from any of the you know, former uh, attendees at the, at the Second Vatican Council or any other clergy? Well, there was a lot of innovations between 1965 and 1969. They were publishing the missiles just in pamphlet form because it was just a complete you know, revolution. And so the new mass itself wasn't published in 1969. And you know, we will see but later how yeah, the general instruction did scandalize a lot of people and they had to take a few steps back with the general instruction, but the mass itself, they, they were adamant on pushing through. Oh. So these are the, these are the off prayers that were, that were changed. And in some cases mm-hmm. just completely removed. Um, one of the other points that you mentioned as a dogma of the faith in regards to the mass is the, is the priesthood itself. Um, mm-hmm. Are they blurring the line between priesthood being a, the, the person who, who, you know, officiates who does the sacrifice? Yes, both in the council documents, Sacrosanctum Concilium, and the general instruction, as well as the new mass, we see a constant blurring between the priesthood of the priest and uh, the priesthood of the faithful, that passive priesthood which the faithful have. And so the sacrifice is always referred to as the sacrifice or the act of both the priest and the people together. In the general instruction for the new mass, the priest is referred to as the president of the assembly, I think over you know, 13 times, and never as the minister who offers you know, the sacrifice. The confidior, which used to be distinct, the priest had his confidior, the faithful their confidior, the priest absolved the faithful. It's now just prayed collectively to show the, the priest and faithful or co-offering this sacrifice of praise because there's no longer a focus on sacrifice of propitiation because that offends the Protestants. And the some of the readings are now done by the faithful. So some of those things which belong to the church teaching are now done by the faithful. The communion of the priest is really essential to the Mass or part of the integrity of the Mass. The priest must receive communion because he stands in the person of Christ. Christ is priest and victim. So when we're standing there in the person of Christ, we must also receive the, the, the immaculate host, the immaculate victim, to show our identity with Christ as priest and victim. Whereas in the new rite, that distinction between the communion of the priest and the faithful is gone. And the new rite makes you think that it's essential the faithful also receive communion. And of course, it's good that they do, but that's not part of the integrity of the Mass. Right. 
Right. It's not, it's not an essential part. No. Wow. Um, so then the third dogmatic point about the mass and that is of the transubstantiation. And again, the, the Novus or mass is not denying it, but it's undermining it again. Yes, it's undermining it. And in a serious way by, by again, by ways of omission or small changes, the elimination of many genuflections used to be 14 or there are 14 in the mass, which we pray the Tridentine mass and others, but three in the new mass in the Tridentine mass. We keep our fingers together after the consecration to protect any small particles of host because we know our Lord is truly substantially present under every particle. And then at the end of the canon, after communion, we do the ablutions with our fingers over the chalice. All that's done away with. There's no holding the fingers together to protect the sacred species. You don't need, need to purify your fingers over the chalice. If the host falls down, there's no purification prescribed to make sure our Lord is not stepped upon. Communion is now received standing on the hand, which all undermines you know, faith in the true presence, in the general institution, as well as the text, Sacrosanctum Concilium. There's a lot of focus on the presence of our Lord in the community. People come together. Our Lord is therefore present. But there's no focus on transubstantiation, which means our Lord is truly substantially present, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And in fact, after the consecration in the new rite, people are encouraged to make an act of faith in Christ who's going to come in the future, which undermines the importance of focusing on Christ who's here present under the sacred species. Wow. It's, and again, it's, it's, they're not outright saying that this doesn't exist. They're not outright saying that it doesn't happen, but it's just, it's slowly eroding. It's, it's taking away that, that spirit of it. Uh, yes. To me, one of the biggest ones, um, and I'm looking at, at some of the notes you passed along to me. Um, some of the biggest, one of the biggest issues to me is the the elimination of the genuflection of the priest directly after he says the words of consecration. Yes. Uh, in it, in my mind, when the priest says these sacred words and our Lord is now present at the altar, it's almost like he falls you know, mm-hmm. to his knees. Rightfully so, right. our Lord is now there. But yeah. in the Noah's Order Mass, it's not. He first shows it to the faithful, and then it's almost like now here's. Here's our Lord. Now we all adore together. It's there's yes, something think, missing there. I think in the in the new mass, that's probably one of the the changes which has most you know affected people's hearts and minds and undermined the faith in a profound way, both in transubstantiation, the priest's ministerial power, the nature of the sacrifice. Because as you mentioned, the priest alone stands there in the person of Christ. He says the words not as a narrative, but in a sacramental formula, which also changed in the new rite. So in the Tridentine rite, there is a narration, but then a period. The priest changes his posture, his tone of voice. He leans over and he says, this is my body in a sacramental form. Whereas now the priest just reads a narrative without any distinct punctuation and just reads right through the narration, as they call it, of the Lord's Supper. And then... After he reads the narration, he lifts up the host. The people assent. They make their act of faith that Christ is present. And then the priest genuflects. So, yeah, that is the one change which most undermines the faith. The priest is no longer in person of Christ doing a sacred sacrificial action. 
in front of which she adores, then the people also adore. No, the priest prays the narration of the Lord's Supper in the New Mass. He shows it to the people, the people assent, and then the priest genuflects. And this leads to all kinds of false ideas on, is our Lord truly present? Is there transubstantiation or merely transignification, a Protestant notion of it merely signifies that our Lord is present, and, and we all assent that our Lord is present, and then we move on to communion. It's almost as if the faithful in the new mass is almost as if the faithful are integral to the transubstantiation happening. It's almost like we need to ascend to what you have just done, Father, and then and then our Lord is present. Which it's and again, it's it's subtle. It, it is it's a real difference, but it is a subtle difference. But it it does something, and it makes sense what you say there that it it wants to make the faithful's presence essential. And in fact, as we can see, the general instruction of the new mass. Paragraph 7, it gave a definition of the, of the new Mass, and it said the Mass is the assembly of the people of God. So mm. the traditional definition is the Mass is the sacrifice of the cross, the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the new definition is the Mass is a supper, and we can quote from the general instruction, the Lord's Supper or Mass is the sacred assembly or the congregation of the people of God gathered together with the priest presiding. Remember, mm-hmm. as we said, the priest is now the president of the assembly, not the sacrificing altar Christus, to celebrate the Lord's, the memorial of the Lord. And for this reason, Christ's promise applies supremely to a local gathering together of the church, where two or three come together in my name, there I am in their midst. So a shift from the nature of the priest and the nature of real presence the priest is a president of the assembly, and our Lord's presence is reduced to the people come together, where there are two or three in my name, our Lord is there, but no reference to transubstantiation, which was lacking in all the documents of the general instruction and Sacrosanctum Concilium. And, and Christ's words there saying, you know, where two or three people come together in my name, there I am in their midst. Yes, absolutely. It's, that's true, but... Uh, that's not that's not something that needs to have happen for for the mass. A priest can say a mass by himself, exactly. and the mass is still the same. The priest offering mass by himself in a small side chapel or in front of ten thousand people is identical. The same mm-hmm. value, the same propitiatory value, the same transubstantiation. Souls are being saved. They're being offered for the living and the dead, which of course the Protestants hate. So, no, there's no essential change in the Mass, whether he's the priest says it with one server or 10,000 people present. In in the terms of, in, in the new Mass itself, is the term transubstantiation ever used or in the instruction on, on the Mass? Is that ever used? In the original instruction published in the spring of 1969, in fact, it was never used. In, so the original instruction, they changed it then? Yes, the absence of the word transubstantiation, so canonized by Trent, the absence of the word propitiation, so essential to the Catholic Mass, is one of the essential ends of the Mass. You know, their absence from the general instruction was so notable that there was a general outcry from Catholic theologians and liturgists. And so the the innovators realized they had to put the word transubstantiation, put the word propitiation, and even that definition we spoke about earlier, paragraph 7, they took it out 
because defining the mass as the gathering of the people of God was so revolutionary that they were forced to backtrack a little bit in the general instruction, add a few words in, take out the definition. But the problem is they built the new mass in 1969 on the general instruction. And then after a year of outcry, they put some words in, removed that faulty definition, but the new mass remained the same. So the foundation had built the new mass. The foundation was tweaked a little bit, but the new mass remains what it is, which is a Protestant rite of mass. It, it sounds almost identical to the playbook. And I, and I use the term, I think on purpose playbook of the, um, the Dutch catechism where there were heresies all sprinkled all throughout it. And uh, the Vatican said, no, you can't do this. They, they wrote a letter condemning it. And then they said, well, you can go ahead and publish it, but we'll just have that letter just, you know, slipped into the back. It's the same sort of thing. There's a problem. Let's not do this. And instead of changing what the real problem is, they just changed the instructions. Yes. And we saw that throughout Vatican II as well with problematic text, with it, which then put a small note or tried to alter, but left the substantial error in place. Right. So. Right. It's kind of like they're almost like patting us on the head. There, there, there. Are you happy now? Yeah. yeah, they always do try to um, cater to the conservatives a little bit while taking two steps forward in the revolution. Well, that's good of them, I guess. Um, so, the, but this definition, I'm going to go back a little bit to what you were talking about, Father. The the definition of the mass as in this in this general instruction, talking about it as being the supper, uh, mm-hmm. almost saying it's it's almost a recreation. That seems really Protestant. Yes. Yes. It very much pleased the Protestants, which means it's ecumenical because the goal of the new mass is to remove everything which offends the Protestants. So there's no focus on the real presence, again, in order to please the Protestants. No reference to the reality of a sacrifice, pleasing the Protestants. And no reference to a sacrificing priest, so pleasing to the Protestants. So fully ecumenical, this definition of the new mass, as was given in paragraph seven of the first general instruction. I, I have to ask, and, and and I hope this isn't too forward of a question to ask about someone who's who's passed away, but Monsignor Bunini, mm-hmm. was he even Catholic? I mean, and I mean that kind of half joking, but half serious, because this this is not Catholic. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's certainly the case. And he was um, a modernist at best. And I know there are theories that he was, it was much worse than that. I don't know if those were confirmed, but he certainly did not have a Catholic heart or mind, that's for sure. His intentions were certainly judged by God, and we don't know what they were. Right. But clearly there was not a Catholic heart or mind behind Cardinal Dignini. And he was working directly with Protestants in the development of the Mass, is that correct? Yes. In fact, he had six, or there were six lay Protestant called observers, but they were much more than observers, present at the Council and present at the um, at the plenary session through which the new mass was developed. So, yes, they invited Protestants to have input on the Catholic mass. Okay. Um, so they were they were there. Uh, are, were there things? So we we've seen how there were things that were taken away from the mass in order to make mm-hmm. the mass more ecumenical, more pleasing to Protestants. Were there any additions to the mass that would kind of smack of Protestantism? Yes. So Cardinal Baum, who is the executive director for ecumenical affairs, he did state clearly that the Protestants did have a role to play and gave their advice regarding the new rite of mass. And Michael Davies confirms that 
And we see a number of things which really smack of the Protestant quote-unquote liturgy. For example, the, the Catholic Mass would be in a sacred language. The Protestant liturgies, certainly and always in the vernacular. The Catholic Mass was usually inaudible, this great mystery facing the East, facing our Lord. Protestants insisted on audible ceremonies. The Catholic Masses did not have lay, non-ordained lectors or readers. The Protestant mass, the Protestant ceremonies obviously did. The Catholics insisted on solemn rites, worshiping God. The Protestants focused on a meal, community. The Catholics believing in transubstantiation would give communion to those who knelt on the tongue. The Protestants, those who were standing in, in the hand, so we see a real practical influence of these Protestant observers in the new mass, which anybody can observe or attend is, is it looks very much like a Protestant ceremony. Were the Protestants happy with these changes? I mean, I'm not seeing flocks and droves of, of Protestants converting to Catholicism, um, frankly, but I mean, were they, were they happy with it? Did, did, was this a success quote unquote for the, for the innovators of the mass? Certainly. And there were a number of Protestants at the time who were highly engaged in the ecumenical movement who praised the new mass for this reason. And in Mm -hmm. fact, the reason that people didn't have to convert is the mass was so watered down that there was no reason to become Catholic because you had in their mind the same thing in the Protestant ceremony. So this ecumenism always leads to the same thing. It does not unapologetically proclaim Christ. And lets everybody think they're saved in their false religion with their false worship. And so just to give a few you know, quotes, there was a Protestant theologian, Roger Mell, and he said, If one takes account of the decisive evolution of the Eucharistic liturgy of the Catholic Mass and of the option of substituting other Eucharistic prayers for the canon of the Mass and the erasing of the idea that the Mass is a sacrifice— and of the possibility of receiving communion under both kinds, then there is no further justification for the Reformed churches forbidding their members to assist at the Eucharist in the Catholic Church. So the Protestants saw the new Mass and said, we have no objection, you can attend it, and in attending it, you're not getting, you're not, you know, abjuring your Protestant thought. Wow. And so now some of these things are starting to kind of make sense when you when you look at all of this, you know, this intercommunion, this this increased ecumenism, you know, prayer meetings at Assisi, uh, the, you know, the rehabilitation of Martin Luther that happened mm-hmm. in Rome a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for, for those of us who have been bathed in traditional Catholicism, we don't really understand how that could happen. But now we see it's, it's baked into the it baked into the mass itself. Yes. And everything which Luther rejected about the Mass has been rejected by the Church in the Mass nearly. And so now Luther can embrace this new Mass, and Catholics in attending it have a hard time keeping their Catholic faith. Wow. Um, I always feel a little bit down at the end of these episodes, I'm not going to lie, Father, uh, which it's a series about the crisis. That's that's mm-hmm. probably a natural reaction. Um, but any, can you leave us with a little bit of a, of a ray of sunshine, maybe at least, <laughs> at the end, Father? Yes, I was thinking the Archbishop, who had a deep love for the Mass and studied the Mass in Rome as a seminarian at the French Seminary, he himself says he did not understand the power of the Mass fully, 
until he went to the pagan missions in Africa. And he saw people deeply transformed by the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. People who, in attending the traditional rite, began to love to offer sacrifices and to live a Christian and sacrificial life. And so the power of the Tridentine Mass still exists today. They're still pre-saying it. And if people want to, to really drink in the theology of the church, drink in the catechism of the Council of Trent, assist at the traditional Mass lovingly, faithfully, as often as possible, and this Mass will transform us. It'll give us a love for the church, and it'll give us a great understanding of Catholic theology, in fact. Yeah. It's still there. It's still alive. Yes. And thankfully uh, to Archbishop of Heaven and good priests like you, Father, it is it is still happening the way it should be. So thank you for keeping everything alive for us, Father. Welcome. Well, well, that was uh, that was eye-opening and, and we appreciate it. And I also want to draw the listeners' attention. Uh, we're going to be posting uh, the notes that Father put together on this um, on our website as well. Just go to sspxpodcast.com slash crisis. It's a little plug there. Um, and you can download this document. There's, um, there are a lot more quotes and everything that we've talked about is here in, in good form so that you can follow along or read it or pass it along. So thank you for doing that for us as well, Father. We appreciate it very much. Welcome. All right. Well, we'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to and watching episode 23 of our Crisis in the Church series here on the SSPX podcast. In episode 24, we'll turn next to Father Paul Isaac Franks and look at the new Mass through the lens of the new theology. This new way of interpreting Catholic doctrine, which was developed in the 20th century, found a very comfortable home in the new Mass. We'll see exactly how this new way of thinking is hidden in the Mass. If you have a question on the topic of the crisis, please feel free to ask it at sspxpodcast.com slash crisis. Please share this episode with someone who you think might enjoy it. And if they don't know what a podcast is, please show them so that they can take advantage of all our episodes. And if you have the ability to set up a monthly recurring donation of 5 or 10 or $20 on sspxpodcast.com, it would help us immensely to complete this Crisis in the Church project. Until next week, thank you for listening, and God bless you.